0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I hope you are doing well. Um, man, it's hard for me to come down after a song like that. That was, yeah. golly, his is the victory. Man, I love that. And um, today, just so you know, we'll be in the book of Mark. If you want to go there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to review, we're going we're gonna to study, we're going to look at here verses 2 through 13. 13. So please turn there. It's going to be the, the transfiguration of Jesus, and, and actually there's nothing like it in scripture. This is a completely unique event. We see some elements of this event similar to others, but this event is completely unique. So before we get going, let me, let me pray for us real quick, because I'm nervous. I have a lot of energy right now, and, and I want this to come across clear, but I want God to just Fill your hearts with his word this morning and change you. So let me ask for that. God, um, we, we are excited to be here. We love singing praises to you. We recognize, we, we behold your goodness. And so, God, we ask that you would use your word this morning to reveal your majesty Lord, where we need it, we ask that you would heal our hearts. And God, we ask that you would use your word today to change our lives. Move us from one place to another to bring you glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that uh, uh, that is is um, my, my prayer that we just are moved today by what God has. And first, though, we have got to get to our uh, memory verse. I am trying to click to it and um, that is okay. You don't need the slide this week for the memory verse because you've memorized it. This is our last week in the book of Mark anyway, so we've got to get rid of that because you don't need it. All right, Mark 8.35 uh, says this, For whoever would lose his life will save it, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, Yes. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. Yeah. You nailed it like a carpenter. That's what's up. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Great job. Um, So, like I said, we're in uh, Mark 9, though. That was... That was last week, and we are now in Mark nine. We're going to look at two through thirteen real quick. I want to tell you a story um, about. Um, oh, I got to be careful with this. I'm messy, like I'm. I'm a dirty dude, like I don't know. I I, I have trouble keeping things in order, like bad, and and uh, so Hannah does a great job helping me with that, and she like turns it into like hyperdrive help me with that when she's pregnant Um, because we're getting ready for a baby to come into our house and uh, and so that was that was happening the the first time with with when when Hannah was pregnant with Piper and and Hannah we were trying to get this nursery ready Hannah goes Austin can you get your office cleaned up so we can make it into a nursery and and I was like yeah what do you want me to do she goes I just need you to throw away all your junk and (laughs) so I'm like, all right, I'll do that. So I threw a couple things away, and I went off for a business trip. And, and I came back, and I had, my wife is so amazing and gracious, and she had these, these piles of things that I should have thrown away, uh, just laid out. And she was so kind. that She even, like, she got a trash bag and started putting stuff in it for me. Uh, so <laughs> she was great, and so that led to some really robust dialogue, shall we say. <laughs> and, and in that, in the midst of that, Hannah, like, she's got the tendency to, like, just drop these wisdom bombs on me. And here's what she said. She goes, Austin, for you, the baby is always coming. The baby is always going to be here. For me, the baby is here. And I'm like, dang it. And (laughs) and I was like, that was really good. That was really good. See, I had, I had known about something. I knew it. I had acknowledged that it's there, but it had yet to impact me. It had yet to move me. I had yet to behold this child in any tangible way, uh, unlike my wife, who already had. And, and so that's the same thing that we're going to see today in the disciples. They know that Jesus is the Christ, they've declared that. They have yet to see what that glory looks like. And so they're, they're going to see it today. So let me read for us um, the, the story of the transfiguration. Uh, Mark 9, uh, 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them high, uh, up a high mountain uh, by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, as it is written of him. So we are going to see today three things. There's, there's three points that I'm going to make. And the first one is that we need to behold Jesus, who he really is. We've got to come to terms with that. We need to behold him. Second, if Jesus, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we must abide or remain in him. We must abide in him. This meant um, for the disciples a change of the course of their life. If God, if, if he really is the son of God, the, the disciples had to change the course of their life. And finally, the last thing we're going to see is that we have to trust. Um, once uh, once they, they, they follow his commands and his promises, once the disciples are abiding in who Jesus is, they've got to trust him. Um, and and what he's doing. So that leads us to our big idea. We are to behold who Jesus is, and then we abide in him and trust him as we live out gospel-centered lives. We are to behold who Jesus is, we abide in him, and we trust him as we live a gospel-centered life. So um, point one here: to behold this is this this whole story. This is really kind of um, interesting. It's this it's this mysterious thing, right? Because Jesus has been showing them the, been showing them some pretty like, crazy, awesome things so far, and up to this point in the book of Mark, uh, we've seen Jesus flex his authority over people, like really smart people, over spirits. Um, we've seen him take loaves of bread and, and make them feed thousands. Uh, we saw him heal a woman by her just touching him. We saw Jesus um, bring a guy's daughter back to life. Um, and then he, he told the weather to quit being bad and it listened. Um, he simply, in this point, he has blown some minds. Um, and, and so none of those things that Jesus has done, right, should surprise us, right? They shouldn't surprise us and they should never Never get old to us. And so, see, um, um, the things that Jesus has done, they should, they should um, be unsurprising, yet eternally astounding. And, and so this mysterious story is, is taking shape after all those great things have already happened. And, and it's interesting because the, the disciples had recognized, they said, well, we recognize that you're the Christ in the section before. Um, however, they had to, uh, to behold. Jesus was and so let's look at what chapter 9 tells us in verse 2 it says after six days he takes some disciples they go up and he is transfigured before them this word means that he was changed before them he's appearing different and what's important here his character doesn't change but his outward appearance does. It is actually his glory, his character, his true self coming through in all its glory. And so it says in verse three that he becomes radiant. Jesus is shining. And a similar word is, is used in the book of Hebrews and it talks about the radiance of the glory of God. It says that there's an intense white. This is like the whitest white. And according to the passage, no one on earth could bleach something as white. Um, and, and so this actually, this no one refers to a person who literally, his job is to bleach things for a living. Um, I have a customer who their job is to make things intensely like w- everything is white. That, that's what their product does. Um, it is the whitest white, the purest white we can find on earth. And I have to believe that Jesus coming through in this moment is whiter than the whitest white. It is intense. And for the first time, these disciples are getting a glimpse of the glory of God. They are seeing him shine. This is the radiance that reflects that Jesus has the exact imprint of God's nature. A radiance which is going to begin to reveal the glory of the one who holds up the universe by the word of his power. That's who the disciples are seeing. They're seeing the image of Jesus yet to come for us. And and that should excite us. They're seeing Jesus in all his glory. He's going to come back in this way and he's going to rescue us. This is our God. The disciples are seeing our hero as he will be when he comes to finally take all who are his and judge all those who are against him. This is the Alpha, the Omega. This is the beginning and the end. He is the all-powerful creator. Jesus is the prince of peace. He is our perfecter. He is our savior, our redeemer, our rescuer. He is the great I am. He is the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life. He is the everlasting Emmanuel, God with us. That is who we are to behold. That is who we are to behold. We know of his greatness from the beginning of creation as it all screams his glory. And so as disciples of Jesus, we have to wrestle with this being who he is. And he's revealing himself to be that in this moment. And so this is of supreme importance because you know we're to behold Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we're actually moved. Now I don't mean that we're simply emotionally stirred, by this, Now that's part of it. Our emotions should well up when we think about Jesus, but what I'm saying is, is that our worldview changes. When we see Jesus like this, um, it, it changes how we look at people. People become, in this sense, they become more than flesh and bone. Relationships um, begin to matter it becomes something we treasure. The Bible is going to become more than just a book. When we look at Jesus like this, devotion time becomes more uh, more than just us trying to score points with God. Work becomes more than just money; it becomes the calling by which we've been uh, given to begin or to work God's plan of restoration. When we view Jesus like this, the church becomes more than a place where we go to like just get right with God. The church becomes a place where we long to be because Jesus has made us right with God. Once we behold Jesus for who he really is, we can't help but change the way in which we relate to him and his creation. And this is when discipleship begins to take on another form. And and so, because how we behold Jesus, what we believe about him directly affects the way we live. Remember, belief drives behavior. And so that's what the disciples had to come to terms with. They knew that Jesus was the Christ, but they hadn't really wrestled with it. When we see Jesus as God, we have to—we've got to we've do something with that, right? We've got to do something. I remember the day that that hit me. I was driving out of my uh, apartment driveway. I'm pulling out, and all of a sudden, like I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but I just remember being smacked with, "Wow! If God is who He says He is, if He is who He has revealed Himself to be in the Bible, that means I need to do a lot differently. I need to look at people differently." I need to go to church because that's where we worship him. There, there were so many things that I realized I needed to change. And what all this led to was that I need to not do this on my own. I need my life. I need to abide with him. I need to a- a- abide in him, excuse me. That means that word abide means to remain. That means to always be with Jesus. Always have him at the forefront of what I'm doing. And so we actually see Peter later in his life, like we, we see him in this moment and we're going to talk about him in a minute, but he's not really wrestling with, with everything. It, it takes some time. He's got to digest it. And we get a picture of what, what that was like for him um, later on in the Bible when Peter writes in, in one of his letters, he says that he was not following cleverly devised myths, but that Peter, had, he says, I'd actually seen Christ's majesty. So Peter's preaching ministry um, is is based on a direct revelation from God. And he's seen him. He's been moved. His life has been altered. Peter has a different direction. And so it wasn't a single moment in time that Peter was emotionally moved, but rather the entire course of his life had changed. When we behold God for who he is, the entire course of our life should change. So um, that takes me to, um, wow, I missed that. I'm sorry. That takes me to our second point. I apologize. Really bad. I was into that. Um, Because we've beheld the power and majesty of Christ, abide or remain in him. Because we've beheld the power and majesty of Christ, abide in him. And so here's what the disciples then, in this moment. So let's talk about the moment, since this moment's going to change the way we do life. Let's look at verse 4. Let's see what they, they experienced. Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses, and, and Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus. And so we actually, this is really cool, we have a glimpse of what Elijah and Moses are talking about with Jesus um, because Luke 9 tells us that. They're talking about his, his departure or his exodus. This is Jesus' death and resurrection and or ascension. Look, this is all part of the plan. Jesus is talking about it with these two. And then what we can also do in this moment is we can recognize, like, Why Moses and why Elijah? What's going on with these two? Well, Moses here, he points to the law, the law which we see given in the Old Testament in Exodus, a law which upholds, um, which Jesus upholds perfectly. And we see that throughout history that Jesus is better than the law. We also see that Elijah, we know that Elijah is a prophet. He's the one who confirmed the glory of God. He confirms that, that Yahweh is the Lord of Lords. He's the great I Am. And so Jesus is the one who then points to that prophecy, right? So, um, then, so we have kind of the framework of who's there, what's going on, and then we see this really uh, silly guy, Peter. He kind of makes a fool of himself here. And, and so he says, Rabbi, well, it's good that we're here. Um, sure, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And so what happens is Peter's really failing in this moment to recognize what's before him. And as I was reading this the first few times, I didn't think Peter made that big of a mistake. You're reading, he's calling him teacher, he's saying it's good to be here, um, and, and, and let's make some houses for you, let's do something for you. And, and so, um, the, the first mistake though is that, that, that Peter could be saying like, okay, it's good that we're here because it's good for somebody to witness this. And while that's, that's true, I mean, come on Peter, like this event isn't about you. Um, this is about Christ. Now here's the thing, Uh, this event is for Peter, but it's about Christ. And and so I think that he's making a mistake that a lot of us seem to make in wanting to establish Jesus' legitimacy as king. But what Peter has wrong is we don't establish Jesus' legitimacy. Jesus is the one who establishes us as disciples. Again, this is for Peter. This is for his discipleship. This isn't about him doing something for Christ. And so also, um, these tents that Peter wants to build, they're kind of a, a silly thing to wish to build. Like God doesn't need a place to dwell on earth. He had chosen to do that as the person of Jesus. Right? He has his dwelling place. Jesus is the tabernacle. And so that has kind of two big implications for us. First, that means that Moses and Elijah, in this moment, aren't equal to Jesus. That's a big deal. These are the all-stars of like the Hebrew uh, way here. And, and, and so... Um, what we need to know is that for us in the 21st century then there is nothing more important in this world to you or shouldn't be really than jesus christ jesus should be the most important thing so just think about jesus greater sign than everything else jesus greater than sign everything else and so second they don't need tents on a mountain because they're not staying there Um, God doesn't want his workers up there. He wants to establish his, his kingdom in the hearts and souls of men and women down below, right? And so let's think real quick. Why does Mark add this then? Why does he tell us this? And the point, he's not trying to shame Peter. It says here that Peter didn't know what to say because he was terrified, which is the right response before a glorious God. And, and so um, Peter wasn't afraid because of what he said, but because of the glory of Christ. And so in a very, like, this is a candid response. And Peter's humanity is just breaking through. Um, and, and it's kind of just as he makes this event about what he can do rather than recognizing what God is going to do, or what God is doing. Peter makes this event about what he can do rather than what God is doing. And, and that's a big deal. That's a tendency that I think we have as people and we should recognize that. And so what happens is then, then God comes down and, and, and kind of gives this, this rebuke to, to Peter. He says um, in verse seven, a cloud overshadowed them, a voice came in the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is a rebuke from God the Father speaking. Last week, Brian said Jesus gave the daddy uh, of of all rebukes here. God the Father is giving a rebuke. And so what happens is in this moment, though, here's what's going on. Jesus, um, uh, God the Father, excuse me, affirms Jesus' authority when he says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Peter, stop talking since you don't know what to say and listen to Jesus. Jesus this is where the call to abide comes in now originally i was thinking like maybe this should just be obey and that's certainly part of it listening to jesus means that we hear his word and then we go do it but there's more to it than that this word listen is to hear him peter it's hard to hear when you're always talking bro stop talking and listen to christ Stop talking and listen to Christ. And then to highlight all the more that Jesus is to who they're they're left, they're they're to listen to, look what Mark tells us. It says, they're left with Jesus only. This is huge. God tells them to listen to Jesus and at that moment they look around and they're left with him. Jesus is more important than the law. The law cannot save you. The prophets pointed to Jesus that's who they spoke of. Jesus is here. Put your trust in him. Now do we listen to Jesus? If so, how? Look, we've been moved by the presence of the glory and the glory of God. Now stop and listen to him. This word abide, remain in Jesus. Are we putting our hope in our morality? Are we putting our hope in, in laws and being good? Look, God's not saying that the law is bad. In fact, we need the law. The law was given to us so that we could, not so that we could save ourselves, but the law reminds us, the rules and the, the things that the law points to reminds us that we can't save ourselves. We can't measure up. It points to our need for Jesus. And that's what the disciples are left with. Only Jesus. Look, once you've beheld who Jesus is and you remain in him, cling to him every day. And here's how you can do that. Think about this. Wake up in the morning praising Jesus. I'm gonna walk you through a day. Wake up in the morning, praise Jesus. Desiring relationship with him through the scriptures. Grab coffee, go sit at the table, open up the word, soak it in. Find a small part to read and write down everything that comes to mind when you listen to Jesus. Go to work in the morning seeking to glorify God then through your work. Have lunch and think about it. I am fueling myself to do the work the Lord has given me as I go make disciples. When you get home for work, point your children to Christ. Point your spouse to Christ. If you're single, point your friends towards Christ. And then at dinner, as you break out the food, recognize God's grace and his provision in the food. And then go to bed and rest easy, knowing that all you did doesn't get you to heaven, but that the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross does then repeat that. This is how you center a day on the gospel, in Jesus's abiding love. This is how you center a day on him alone. Centering your life on him alone will begin to lead you to love God more and love people. And here's the thing, as we do that, we have to trust him. That's our third point. We have to trust him. Look, you're not going to do everything perfect. Actually, if you do what I just laid out, you might not make more money. You, you might not have an easier life, but trust the promises secured by Christ who has suffered for you. That's what the disciples are called to in verses 9 through 13. So, 9 through 13, they're coming down the mountain. Um, they... Uh, um, they were to tell no one what they saw until Jesus rose from the dead. So we've heard this before. This is the first time he gives a time on it. All right, don't tell anyone till Jesus rises from the dead. And they are called to trust that. In this moment, they're being called to trust that Jesus's work will be finished when he rises from the dead. And this is why Jesus came. He didn't come just to show his glory. He didn't come just to show off, but to accomplish something on the cross and then to defeat death. The resurrection is the point of what he's going to do. He is going to show the world, the world, who he is at that point. And so this passage confirms everything that we've been reading up to this point on the command to keep silent. Namely, it's the culmination of all that Jesus is doing is going to be finalized in the resurrection. The healings that Jesus has done, resurrecting people, um, feeding people in abundance the transfiguration all this points to the notion that there is going to be a resurrection and this is the first time that jesus, is, jesus says to wait until then so the transfiguration here then it is to seal the faith because they have to go through all this the point of this event is they going to seal the faith of these disciples god did this because here's the thing the disciples somewhat like us, actually, are living in this this tension, right? There's this this tension that they're going to live in because they have to wait for Christ to suffer. We're living in a tension now where we're waiting for Christ to return, trusting that promise. And here's the thing, he must suffer. And they're going to have to trust his work even in that suffering. And so interestingly, verses 11 through 13 here, interestingly, the disciples um, kind of begin to do what I think we do. They miss the primary point. So they're coming down the mountain, not supposed to talk about it, wait until the resurrection, um, keep this matter to yourselves. And then, and then they say this, as they're thinking about it, so they're keeping the matter, they're thinking about what rising from the dead might mean, and they go, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And what they're doing is they're missing the point. They're still missing the point. They begin to try and fill, fill in the holes of, of the story. So there's this big story, this whole biblical narrative going on, right? And, and Jesus, uh, this is talked about in the Old Testament, and they're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, uh, Elijah was supposed to come first, right, and restore all things. They're filling in what they know with this event, and they're bringing up the Old Testament prophecy. And so what happens is Jesus is going to go, and he's going to answer their question, but he's going to point and say, look, you've actually, you've got things kind of backwards. Elijah will come to restore all things, Elijah will come to restore all things prior to the day of the Lord. That's the book of Revelation. Elijah does come at that time to restore all things after the suffering Messiah that's prophesied in Psalms in Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus takes their focus. What he's doing when he asks them his question then, what he does is he's taking their focus off of, okay, my book smarts, He's saying, focus on how much they know, and he's saying, look at me. He's saying the prophecy points to me. The important thing here is that the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus must suffer. And in verse 13, Jesus basically says, Elijah has actually come already in the form of John the Baptist, but they missed it up to this point. See, John the Baptist had been killed. But Jesus says, if John the Baptist must die for proclaiming me, then I must suffer all the more in order to be me. That's what the Messiah does. That's what the Messiah does. So here's what happened. Jesus enters in. He breaks through. He enters into earth. And he takes the suffering for sins upon himself. And this is how kingship is established. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We are sinners. I hate that we have to say that, but we are. We have to recognize that, every one of us. And and we try not to be, but we are. And there's a punishment for that. Because God is a holy, righteous, glorious God. Sin must be dealt with. And so Jesus comes and he reveals his glory as God. And instead of condemning us, he tastes death for us. He suffered for us and then he defeats that suffering. So here's the thing, he doesn't doesn't just stop at suffering. He doesn't just stop at death. Now if we trust that his death took the punishment for our sins, then we're going to have eternity with him. And once we do that, once we realize that, we are going to see Jesus as king. We don't just live knowing that Jesus died for us. We live knowing that he has resurrected and in all glory stands in heaven and rules and reigns over this earth. And there's nothing out of his sovereign control. And when we realize that, when we we give our lives to that, when we trust in that, then the work of restoration is going to begin in our hearts and in the world. So look, Jesus is the ultimate restorer. If Elijah and John the Baptist restored all things and suffered for it, how much more would Jesus restore through his suffering? His suffering would do what God had pointed to in all the other ways he tried to restore humanity. His suffering takes our hearts of stone and turns them into flesh. I mean, think about when we sing the gospel, what happens to you? Think about when you hear about his suffering. It takes our hard hearts and softens them. And once our hearts are changed, restoration begins, and those who are saved are a new creation. Jesus answered their question, but in his answer, he is saying, don't miss looking at me. The prophets are good, but they are pointing to me. And so here is our conclusion. We are to behold God. We see his Godship. We see his beauty and we are in awe of who he is. We are to abide. If he is who he says he is, then we need to live lives that seek him and we are to trust him. We center our lives on the fact that he paid for our sin and now he reigns as king. And so what we want to do here is we're going to take a minute. We want to reflect on what this means for us, okay? We need to behold who Christ is by thinking about his might and his authority and his beauty. We also need to ask ourselves, do we need to spend more time listening to him, ensuring that our relationship is not is built on what he says, not on how we think life should work? Do we trust him for the outcome of our lives? Do we need to work on trusting that his suffering and becoming our substitute is the only way to glory? So here's what we're doing. Take a minute and do that. But as you do that, also think about this, that we are about to witness the baptism of people who have done this very thing. They have beheld who Jesus is. They are seeking to abide in him by obeying his commands. And they are trusting in him for their salvation and for the rest of their lives. Okay, so think about what this picture is. Think about the picture of the gospel that it is and how it's living out a changed life. So let's take a few minutes and then uh, I'll pray and we'll be done. Enamored with you, we love you. We love to think about you and your glory and your goodness, God. As we do that, change our hearts. Reveal how glorious your goodness is when we think about you sending Jesus to die for us, and God, as we're softened change us, begin to move us in our lives in a way that reflects you, so that other people may know you, so that, Lord, all the earth may shout of your glory. God, we just want to see much made of you. Lord, I pray for our people and myself, Lord. I pray that we just, we, we dwell this week on who you are. And so, God, I ask that you work that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, at this time, we are going to